Hello, I'm Donna Stubbart. And I'm Alan Gregory. And we are Pennywise Dreadful. As is customary, we'd like to begin with a content warning. So Stephen King writes horror fiction and frequently explores the dark side of human nature. At times during the podcast, we will be discussing events that some listeners may find disturbing or even traumatising. And this month, Alan, we're talking about the last of the Richard Bachman books in my collection. Yes. It's The Running Man. Yeah, uh, I mean, we've still got uh, Blaze to come later, but I think this is the last of the the culturally accepted yep. Bachman books. Or, I guess, the last of the, the Bachman books that were released before Bachman's identity was... Before he was killed. ...revealed, <laughs> and he was, he was killed off. Yes, George Stark. <laughs> so I think, Alan, we decided we were going to talk about the film as well as yes. this novel, which is a deviation from our norm. We don't particularly talk about the films in great detail. Yeah, but, but I think this is a, a special case. I think, yeah, this is a special case, mainly because of the cult following that this particular adaptation of King's has, I think. Um, and the difference in the text. Mm. Before we get to that, though... Sorry. It's all right. No, given that we, we started by mentioning that The Running Man is the last of the, of the Batman books, I've wondered whether you wanted to start by taking an opportunity to think about the sort of similarities between the, the three or, or four Batmans and the, and the sort of the linkages between the four, if there are any. Of course there are. I think the very biggest one is the lack of a happy ending. Yeah, I spot Richard Bachman doesn't like a happy ending. No. Does he? (laughs) It's all about last stands, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. They all very male-centric last stand. Yes, I think this one, I think, has lots of similarities with The Long Walk. Yes. Doesn't it? I think we said that when we discussed The Long Walk, that Mm. there's there's quite a lot of similarities. But I did, upon my reread, they became a little bit more prevalent for me. Mm. Probably with reading them in such close succession, because it hasn't been that long since we um, read *The Long Walk*. But it's no. the same idea of of the the, the nihilism of the la- of life and everything going wrong and dystopia and just everything being bad. Yeah, it was. It's funny because I remember reading. King's introduction to Salem's Lot mm-hmm. and him talking about how um, his original intention was to kill every protagonist in, in Salem's Lot and but they always found a way of, of surviving. I'm wondering if if Barkman was King's sort of pathway yeah. to a more destructive <laughs> form of uh, of fiction. In the sense that he doesn't have to deal with his conscience in terms of letting some of his protagonists survive, he's, he's ha- quite. He seems quite happy to kill them all off. Mm, he does in his backman disguise. Yes, I think I've read in the introduction to this, in the introduction to the Running Man, that mm-hmm. he says. Um, Backman came out on rainy days, and King was about on sunny days. Yeah, which the the style of writing and mm. the text itself, I think, lends an air of depression and dismal and rainy weather. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah, I mean, 
Uh, I kind of find it sad that The Running Man is the product of a of a school holiday, in the sense that you, you break from the nine to five job that King obviously hated so much. And but yet his sort of freedom from the constraints of that mm. nine to five job, he still ends up finding Barkman surfacing into his like you say, the raining day yeah. rainy day alter ego. So I wonder whether it's because he knows he's not gonna be free from the constraints of the nine to five job for too long. Yeah, maybe. Um, and he's just he can just just give a, a, a level of freedom to himself that mm. he can't when he's being Stephen King. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, th- I found some quite interesting that he wrote this novel in 72 hours. For, oh, does 10 days include the, uh, the yeah, editing It must include process. the editing, I'd have thought. But yeah, the, the 72 hours to write the, the novel itself. Mm. Which, that's still good going, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's not... <laughs> It's not a slim tome in in the way that some some novelists would consider slim. Uh, I mean, it's not as it's not on a, the epic scale of something like The Stand, but it, it's it's a considerable text mm. still. But I'm wondering whether it's because the the nature of the of the of the trajectory it's trying to uh, put forward means that. The process kind of matches the the narrative itself and the, mm. and the speed in which there's an it, urgency it, about the entire narrative, isn't there? And it's yeah. not just to do with the t- title chapters. No, I think the entire narrative has a sense of urgency that we're building up to a finale. Mm. The same way as ro- uh, road work, not road work at no, all. Road work does have it. But I was thinking of the long walk and mm. the the idea of the game show and that there's an end at some point and that's where we're going. Yeah, I mean there is an element of gameplay to both, and, mm. and, and, and I'm wondering, as a, as a, a video game specialist, oh, well, we can talk about that when we get to the film. All right. Because I was rewatching the film last night for doing mm-hmm. this today, and the video game parallels in the early days of video games mm-hmm. jumped out. So we can we'll get to that. All right, all right. Um, I guess the other um, question I had for you was about. Because obviously, the, one of the main differences uh, between the the book and the film uh, is the kind of the parameters of the arena mm-hmm. of, of the game show. Mm-hmm. In in terms of there are no parameters really um, in the original text. Mm-hmm. Um, Richards is able to kind of go as far as he wants. You yeah, know? he's not set a limit of any kind. Um, and I'm wondering whether, because I seem to remember having a discussion with you when George Osborne was Chancellor um, about things in Britain becoming very running man. <laughs> um, but I'm, upon rereading it, I'm wondering whether you need a landmass the size of the United States of America to play something like this out. You couldn't sort of play it on a, on a, an island the size of the UK. Do you mean, though, do you mean the original text of the film adaptation? Because I think it would be possible to do the filmic adaptation. Oh, no, I mean in terms of because there are no parameters on the, in the original right. uh, text. I don't know, because um, I don't watch very much television. I play video games and read. But there has been a television programme recently that has crossed my radar. Is it 
can't remember what it's called. It's a Channel 4 one, and it is literally people running, people running, you know, to try and escape hunters. Mm. I think maybe it's called Hunted. Is it? A voice from off stage would indicate that it. But yeah, there is the potential to do this sort of thing in Britain, and this is one of the things I think King's amazing at. When when was this book written? 1982, and he's predated what's going on in television in Mm. 2018. Mm. Long before things like The Truman Show and films like that, and Hunger Games, and all those. Years before that, Stephen King was saying that, and all these films have had great critical acclaim for being so groundbreaking. But the Running Man came first. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I just I think because I was just struck when the fir- the first thing once he got his fake papers, mm-hmm. um, the first thing that Richard thought to do was was jump on a plane, mm-hmm. you know, and w- we wouldn't have that wouldn't get you very far no. if you know if you were looking at the UK. So I was. But I, get, I, I kind of get... I think, I think with the setting of the book, I thought of America as... A, I wasn't thinking of it as America as we know it. I was mm. thinking of it as a, a discrete series of small spaces because of the dystopian mm. nature of everything and the fact everybody's out to get him. Like the gaming zone. So that's where the, the zones come from. Yeah. Maybe, if you're looking at it in terms of the adaptation from uh, text to film. Yeah. Okay, that works for me. Yeah, um, that's what I was saying. Yeah, yeah, exactly that. And um, no matter where he goes, he's trapped within a small area. Mm. You know, he goes to the house with... You know, I'm terrible at names. The late, the woman and the son. Oh, yeah. Um, and she Elton, rings the police. He's trapped in a small Elton, area. Virginia yeah. Uh, Paracus. Yeah. It's a small area. When he's being the priest in a disguise, it's still a small mm. area that he's in. Mm. And the transitional spaces are quite boring, really. You know, I'm going to be in the car, I'm going to drive, I'm going to be locked in the trunk. Yeah. And so, yeah, I think that lent me to think it was discrete spaces, small spaces. I find, I mean, despite the fact that she's not in the text for very long, I found Virginia Paracas a particularly... Um, engaging figure. Mm. I know we're not not an empathetic figure. I felt. I, found I don't her. know. I felt quite sorry for her. I did. Really? She's yeah. No, I did. <clears throat> I understand that we're not supposed to particularly empathise with her, but she's in a quite bad position too. Mm. They're, they're starving. They're not. They don't have a lot, and she has the opportunity. She's frightened. The, the son says, doesn't he? Says she's frightened all the time. Mm. And she has sees a chance to get rid of something that causes her fear. Uh, I guess. Ooh. Yeah, so Richards becomes the physical embodiment yeah. of her fear. Yeah. Which brings us on to... Because I'm wondering whether there's a slight foreshadowing of, um, of it. Yes. And in terms of Pennywise embodying all well, the children's to, fear. Apart from anything else, they go to Derry. Yeah. But I mean, in terms of, I see the shadowing of, uh, foreshadowing of, of Eddie's relationship with, with his mother yeah. in, in it. Yeah. But also, I mean, it, it's a revision of the mother archetype that King uses a lot from yeah. Margaret White onwards, yeah. I think. That, uh, but I can see where this character's coming from in a way mm. that Margaret White just. 
just we a don't. horrible she's woman. She's just a horrible start. woman. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because I think, actually, on, on further reflection, I'm, I am convinced by the argument in the sense that, like you were talk, if you talk about the various places that Richard goes as a sort of lit, smaller game spaces within mm. within the gaming arena, um, a lot of the the people he uh, meets are grouped similarly. There, there are there is no sort of big society no. to use Cameron's horrible, horrible uh, David Cameron's awful term for, for British society. We can, go, we can go further back than that and talk about Margaret Thatcher's there is no such thing as society, it's just a bunch of individuals out for themselves. Mm. I think that fits, this novel especially fits that perfectly. Mm. Well I mean, because this is the, um, <clears throat> this novel was sort of conceived in an era when the special relationship was a, yeah. was a thing. We are, we are talking yeah, sort we're of Thatcher-Regan, Fa- aren't yeah. we? Yeah, we are. So Thatcher would have been a, a spectre in sort of um, King's mm. political sphere, mm. maybe. But it's going to be more Ronald Reagan, isn't it? <clears throat> but I mean, in terms of the links between the, t- the two, yeah. means yeah. that... Thatcher is not going to be an alien. Uh, no, figure no, but to... I think I think there's definitely um, an interrogation of Reaganism mm-hmm. and his idea of the nuclear family mm-hmm. and oh, yeah. all of the, that historical stuff going around Reagan. And I think King's deconstructing that somewhat. That we don't all have white picket fences and wonderful lives, and and there is a great swathe of society in that novel that are starving to death. And Do you think then that that's why Amelia Williams, his um, hostage mm-hmm. at the end of the, the um, of the novel, survives? In that she sort of it's it's hinted that she could form a bridge between the yeah. two factions. She realizes the, the excessively wealthy and the excessively yeah. poor. Yeah, she realizes that everything's not as she's been led to believe, doesn't she? Similar to the lady in the film that I'm doing my I can't remember names thing again and I can't remember this but one. She, that's how she starts isn't it she yeah. is taken hostage at the very beginning by Arnie I'll be back Schwarzenegger and she is quickly shown the reality that what is being presented to the public isn't real yeah yeah uh, I mean I buy into the relationship in the book more yeah. than in the film because yeah. it's it's not built to be a romantic one. I'm, I'm no. sort of no. I I don't like the sort of Hollywood romance aspect of the of the. But that's the so emblematic of those films at that point in time where yeah. you get to the end and he has to sweep her off her feet. <clears throat> yeah, that's, yeah. That was one of the many things that does make me laugh watching The Running Man. <laughs> Oh, there are many things. Many things that are funny about <laughs> The Running Man. But yeah, I think... <clears throat> sorry, to go back to the text, I think King does quite well at setting up his world very quickly. Because this is a fairly short novel in King terms. Yeah. But very within a couple of chapters, we know when, we know where, we know how. We know what's going on within a couple of very short chapters, don't we? Yeah. We know he's poverty-stricken. We know his daughter's got pneumonia. 
and he he feels he's the only choice is to go take part in the games somewhere. Yeah. I found it interesting that his wife knows that that's what he's planning as mm. well before. He doesn't it's a kind of it it kind of verifies the authenticity of their relationship yeah. in the fact that she can read that his fixation on the games means that that is yeah. what he's planning, given that he's never watched them before or never shown any interest in yeah. watching them before. And then, of course, once he gets to Games HQ, the, the 3V is on and he has no interest yeah. in them again. I think the other thing that's interesting about that relationship, and especially the way King's written the female character, she's mm. a prostitute. Yeah. And it's, or she's it's, been driven to prostitution. Yeah, she sells her body to pay for what's needed. And yeah. it's not portrayed negatively. You know, we're not looking no. down our noses at her. She's no. doing it out of necessity. Yeah. And we're giving a level of understanding for that. I think, actually, the thing mm. is that you get the sense that primarily, obviously, Richard is, is going to games headquarters... To, to participate in the games and to give his family the financial needs to, to buy yeah. Kathy's medicine. Yeah. But also you do get the sense that the secondary consideration is to get Sheila out of... Uh, yeah, because he tells her not to turn any more tricks, doesn't yeah. he? Yeah, But... I, uh, I think King, King does quite well there at not judging. Yeah. It's just a, it's just a fact of the life that they are living. I think the thing that in, that uh, I noticed, if you like, was that despite that being Richard's intention, once he's successful in in being chosen uh, for the games, her body gets sold in a different way. Mm. So his intent is financially met because he's able to sort of escape. Mm. Um, the hunters for for that. For I mean, he beats enough. the record, doesn't he? He does it yeah. for more than eight days. Yeah, but because <clears throat> of the way his story is told on screen before it begins, uh, she ends up selling her body to the masses in a different way, mm. and not voluntarily. That is on. Could I go as far as to say that's a symbolic rape? Yeah, I don't see why it can't be seen as that. I think <clears throat> I wanted to ask you about Sheila in particular. Yeah. We get to the end of the novel and Killian tells Ben that they're dead, Sheila and Kathy. Mm. But it's never verified. No. So do you think that's a real death or do you think that's just them trying to trick him into being part of their machine? Because I've got mixed feelings about that. I think that the problem with that is I think that that is... Or rather, from Killian's point of view, it's it's an empty card to play. I don't know, In, because if you think... Well... If you think that you've got nothing left to lose... Yeah. But my point is... I, I No, but the thing is, I kind of get the impression that once he walks out the door to go to Games HQ, Ben Richards has already sort of... Uh, reconcile himself to the the idea yes. of he won't see his wife yes. or child again. Yes. So therefore, in his head, I know that there are times where he's thinking, oh, "What are they doing now?" Yeah. But I think in his head, once he's walked out the door, they're dead, mm. and therefore threatening. 
he's already confronted the prospect yeah. um, in an ab- in abstract terms of them being dead. Mm-hmm. So bit being told they're dead without verification doesn't really strengthen the, the game's. I don't know because uh, Killian does, Killian doesn't know that, does he? No, but I I wonder whether. And it, that is I, I that just, is what triggers Ben to then drive the plane into the game's HQ. Yeah. Because he's got nothing to lose anymore. Yeah. So while I think he's True. he has abstractly come to terms with it, I think you're absolutely right. At the beginning of the novel, yeah. he knows he's never going to see them again. I think at some point in the narrative, there is a bit of hope sneaks in. Yeah, but I guess the reason I'm I'm wondering about about it in the terms I am is that it's it, I see it as another component of of Killian losing control and the st- and the card being st- beginning to be stacked mm. to be stacked in in Richard's favour. Mm. Um, because this is the thing as well. Even if it's not verified and they are still alive, if he takes the only way that he'll ever see them at all is if he takes Killian's offer. Mm. But if he takes Killian's offer, there's no way that the game takes you will allow him to be the head yeah. hunter and still see his fat. He can't, the life he he knew. It's gonna it's gonna fracture the nuclear family one way or the mm. other. So. It's a complicated. This is why I want to ask because it is quite complicated, and I do have mixed feelings about it. Yeah. Part of me thinks that it's Killian just doing what Killian needs to do to get his result. Yeah. And he wants Ben Richards because Ben Richards has become better than the hunters. Yeah. You know, and, and thinking about it in those terms, you would say whatever you need to say. Yeah. But. On the other hand, you know, he did reconcile himself to losing them right at the beginning and she was living in a particularly precarious position and at the beginning we are told that if Ben goes anywhere near her, her life is going to be forfeit because of the danger he's putting her in. So we're given the knowledge that she is in physical danger. Yeah. So it's in, you know, I think this both... Yeah. Both things can be weighed up. Yeah. to, To... Makes sense within the narrative. Yeah. It is one of those... Because it seems from the discussion we just had that we view it entirely differently. <laughs> but that's one of the... That's one the of the joys, joys of King. Of, yeah. Yeah. And, and this text particularly, I think. Uh, the fact that we've come to completely different conclusions about what it means. And I think this is one of the joys of the, our podcast yep, in particular. Absolutely. So. so going on from there then, mm-hmm. about differences and reading it differently, yeah. what about the difference in Ben's character in the novel to the film adaptation? Because there is nothing, nothing apart from the name yeah. that links Ben Richards of the novel and Ben Richards of the film. No, I mean, I, I must admit, when he's crawling through uh, that pipe, mm. I'm sort of going... Arnie's not getting through no, the pipe. No, I mean, that, that's that, at that point he says it's a good job he's malnourished. And you can't look at Arnie at all and think, oh, look, you're malnourished. Yeah. I mean, we're given... In you don't look at Arnie and go, that guy needs a good feed. No, I mean, we're given the beginning of the film when he gets sent to prison, we're given a rough montage of him doing all these big manly things to show how big and strong and wonderful he yeah. is. 
and that Ben Richards in the novel would have fallen down and hidden in the corner forever if he was asked to do those things, doing that hard labour yeah, in that I mean, prison. Well, is it, there are a couple of references to him being like well built. I don't know. I, I sort of imagine, I imagined sort of like a, a Steve Rogers figure mm-hmm. uh, before he becomes sort of Captain America and before all the yeah. I, I think I possibly did, but then when you get the descriptions of him led me to just tone down the muscular structure yeah, and definitely get rid of any trace of fat yeah, and health. Yeah. And then we're, we're told in the novel, aren't we, that breathing is like smoking 40 a day. Yeah. Just breathing, yeah. you know. So I'm not seeing him as, as a healthy person. No. At all. We're getting, we got told that he had, when he gets his first meal in the... In the games HQ, we're told that's the first proper meal he's had in God knows how long. Yeah. So I think I saw possibly that build, but that build reduced. Yeah. But there is a huge difference. Can you imagine Arnie doing many of the things that Ben does in the novel? Uh, not really. And equally, can you imagine the Ben of the novel facing up to Dynamo? Or <laughs> sub zero. No. <laughs> no. Well, there's just they're, there's, they are polar opposites. They're, they're yeah. not the same guy. Not at all. Um, and I think that's quite an interesting turn of masculinity, mm. isn't it? Well, I mean, I think I mean I've I've written briefly about this. I think that and it and it comes with with the sort of renegotiation of, of the of the game space that John Paul. Glacier. I think mm. it's John Paul Glacier. Paul, oh, Paul Michael, Michael Glacier. Glacier. Starsky so. from Starsky and Hutch. Really? Yeah. So Paul Michael Glazier, I think, has really, really went for the for the gladiatorial arena mm. idea. And it's hinted at in the text itself yes. that, that that is kind of the origin yeah. of the, the, the game's headquarters notion of... Mm. of because yeah, it's not original. That's it. That's yeah. where it comes from. Gladiator yeah. has always had uh, games, so he's kind of picked up on hints that King's left in the text and and really gone and picked them out and gone and expanded mm. them. Um, certainly, in terms of the way he uses reality television, is I mean, the the free V is a constant presence in the in the text, but. I'm un- I mean, there is there is shades of 1984 there mm-hmm. in both the novel and the film, yes. isn't there? Except you're allowed to turn off the freebie occasionally. But I think the thing that I got more in in Glazer's adaptation is the is the audience participation and how sort of savage that can Hunger be. Games. I was thinking. Yeah. I know this is a much later mm. <coughs> film trilogy book yeah. trilogy, but I think there is definitely something there. That lends itself to talking about the Hunger Games in comparison. Yeah, and, and got, obviously video games. And I think I'm not sure, therefore, what I feel about the sort of amalgamation of Bobby Thompson and uh, of Killian, mm. of Dan Killian, mm. in the novel to become one guy, Damon Killian, who of course was very. It was picked for very obvious reasons. I mean, they had Richard Dawson do it, who yeah. hosted Family Feud, and has you know, and it, because of the way it's built up as a performance, 
yeah, there's definitely he's definitely got the charisma that's needed and the the cultural recognition. I I don't know. I kind of I like the disconnect between the two, uh, between Bobby Thompson being with the sort of MC mm. within the, the on the television set. Yeah. And then the idea of I think what the book does more successfully is I think is what I'm driving at is that the television set is not the apex mm. of of the corporate pyramid. Mm. That's just the the veneer over yeah. the top, yeah. right? It's, it's sort of very David Lynch in that sense. Mm. And, um, to get beneath that sort of surface veneer um, to reach the Dan Killian at the apex, yeah. you, you have to go up. Ten floors. Yeah. To the top of his very. And do do all the little tests. Yeah. That you have to prove that you're capable in the first place. Yeah. So I think the film loses something in that yes. regard by merging the two figures. Yes. Right? I think I think the film does lose something in the fact that we're not see we don't see the process by which the picking particularly happens. Yeah. Oh, I want him because he looks good in a riot, and they're all convicted criminals. We lose a lot of. What I think King's doing for social commentary, yeah. In that we don't get any of that, and I think the film is a lot more science fiction than mm. the novel. Yes, well, I mean, I I think that that's. Um, I mean, that's not including the lycra-clad army no. suits. No, but I mean, I wonder whether that's why, say, that's why Yafit Koto is is picked because he, he has previous mm. in terms of as in alien. Mm-hmm. So I think that there is a sort of recognition of his uh, previous within the yeah. science fiction arena. Yeah. But again, I think that the film loses something by... I mean, I quite like films which represent the homosocial and, and male bonding in, mm. in that way. But there's none of that nope. in, in this. And I think for a figure like Ben Richards to, to be able to sort of seek solace through male bonding in the film adaptation it's uh, it's not as successful no, in, in no. portraying I mean once, once you add Amber the lady Amber to ah, the mix yeah. there's a different dynamic and that's not in the film yeah. the old, apart from Sheila and the lady at the beginning the neighbour yeah. the only major female character is the hostage yeah, and that's and not a romantic thing at all. In fact, Ben Richard refuses romantic elements. Yeah. Where, and that's how we end up with Arnie, where he gives her a kiss at the end because yeah. everything's going to be all right. But I think that... Because I think it's something that Hollywood or uh, films in general do to texts like this. Mm. I think something similar happened to to War of the Worlds. Yeah. The, 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 you know, H.G. Wells is representations of, of masculine it is very much like lone wolf mm-hmm. fighting for mm-hmm. survival and I yeah. think that I would say there are uh, I wonder if I would imagine King's Red War of the oh, Worlds and, yes. and I would Im- I could see that being an, an influence on him in the writing yeah. of, of a text like this Yeah. so I find it hard harder to invest in in some when when the sort of the primal drive for survival in the novel is the only thing that really keeps him mm. going. And that should be sufficient. Trying to sort of add extra incentives. Mm. And it's like, 
you have other people who are yeah. depending on you and all that sort of thing. It, it loses something I in that regard. So. I think so. <coughs> Excuse me. I think adding that plot of the numbers, the codes, the satellite thing yeah, was a bit... I didn't... I understand why they've done it for the entertainment value mm. and they're trying to say something about technology yeah. and being in the wrong hands mm. and... But that inclusion, as you say, lessened my investment in Richard's character because he was having to look after... Yeah. Because that, that was the intention of putting them in there yeah. with him, is that he had to look after them as well as ensure his own survival. And they're doing it for some revolutionary reason that's outside the remit of anything. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm, I think maybe it's a way of of demonstrating Richards's leadership qualities mm. to the audience and therefore that's a component of the thing that tips their allegiance from um, they're not called hunters in the, in the no film, they're they? just gladiator type what, what do they get called oh I can't remember never mind never mind but yeah the thing that struck me about them just while we're talking about them is they're like um, end of level bad guys yeah in a video game yeah. I mean eat sub-zero he is a huge video game character in his own right. Never mind being a character in that film. Yeah. He is a baddie who defeats people. You know, he's Mortal Kombat. He is huge in you know that, that yeah. character. And that's going to be something a lot of people know. And so that that's a direct linkage there to a video game structure. And this, like, this, mm. the novel has... I, I was saying before, small areas which are linked by transit. Yeah. In the same way as they do in the film, you know, they have a, an arena where they have a sub zero and then they have another, they travel to the next arena where somebody yeah. comes at them in a car. And that is very video game style, where yeah. you go from one bad guy to the next yeah. bad guy until you get to the big bad guy, which in this case is Killian. Yeah. Yeah. And actually, I think it, I, I find it interesting that Killian is the is the big boss, given that all of your your sort of end of level baddies are are physically imposing in a way that that Damon Killian is just not. Mm. He is is a big baddie because of his because of his oratory um, skill. Yeah. I think that's quite interesting that they used recognised figures as well. Jesse the Body Ventura. Jesse Ventura, yeah. You know, and he's he's the bad guy that does the fake fight. Yeah. Which I think is quite interesting in terms of technology, the use of technology, the abuse of technology. Mm. And yeah, that I think that's quite an interesting that <coughs> excuse me, turns the um the, the, the make-up Ben Richards is dead, don't they? Yeah, they do. Which is a very strange thing, if you ask me, because he's still at large somewhere, and it's not like he's not going to be seen. But... But it's it's supposed to demonstrate the, the corporation's yeah, desperation. To... And their power. Yeah. That they can superimpose both Richards and Amber's yeah. features onto another person who is disposable enough to be killed... In order for them to make their point and keep their power, I'm wondering whether it's also a a, a way of articulating their inexhaustible 
um, supply of resources mm. in the way that, like, so he kills one. He kills Sub Zero first, doesn't he? Kills Sub Zero. With so they um, send, send Dynamo. Barbed wire. Yeah. So they send Dynamo out. Dynamo's great, isn't he? I mean, let's be, let's he's, be frank he's here. He's our favourite. He's singing opera while lit up with a bunch of cheap LED lights like a Christmas tree. What's not to like about that? <laughs> exactly. I'll be honest, I kind of want a Dynamo to kill Ben Richards. <laughs> uh, but I think there's a moment with Dynamo when Ben Richards doesn't kill him. Yeah. And I think that's the point where the crowd starts turning just, just a little. Well, They see for themselves and hear for themselves that he won't kill and. It, a defenseless person. Well, it's, it, it goes back to the sort of uh, the gladiatorial games mm. in, in Rome, right? Yeah. So the co- if you call, the corporation is is Caesar, and they've given the, the thumb down. Yeah. And it, he's defying them by not killing Dynamo yeah. in that way. Yeah, but um, I think that that was quite. Neat. I think that's the moment where the crowd begins its turn yeah. because he's it's portrayed. It's the same. It's the same as Gladiator. So therefore, what we're actually asking is. Remake the Running Man with Russell Crowe as Ben Richards. That's mm. terrible. Terrible. <laughs> no. That's a terrible idea. That is a that terrible I don't idea. Actually, mean that. But I'd imagine this is one of those sorts of films that's ripe for a remake. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, but I mean, I, if you transfer, I mean, in the wake of Hunger Games and Maze Runner and yeah. that genre that's been fairly recent. But when we say remake, it's ripe for a remake. We, you'd want, we'd want something. Closer to the original text this time, wouldn't it? I don't know. It depends on whether you're doing it as a remake of the film or a remake of The Running Man, doesn't it? You know, I think there's. I think there would be potential to do an original version mm. of The Running Man that stays closer to the text. I, th- I think that that's the only because The Running Man, as a film, has has kind of been a gateway for so many others mm. to, to to retread the. the the territory. Yeah. If you remade it again, it wouldn't get the recognition for its trailblazing. I don't know because I think it's quite an underrated film, isn't it? Yeah, but it, I think it's still on a lot of people's cultural oh, gosh, radar. Yes. So I, I, and I think it's one of those films that people don't realise is anything to do with Stephen King, Richard Bachman. It's like Shawshank Redemption and The Body. Where people are genuinely shocked when that's Stephen. That's not a Stephen King film. What? I I think that it depends what elements of the original text you want to take out of it. Mm. I think that because Paul Michael Glazier, call him Starsky if you like. I'll know who you mean. All right, because um, <laughs> Starsky was uh, so intent on on really emphasising the reality television. I think just to interrupt you violently. That's all right. He was a replacement. He was the third director. He came in at the last minute. So I think a lot of it's not actually his. But Arnie said it was. Because mm. Arnie said he took it in a direction he didn't really want it to go. But that's. Uh, the first guy went over budget in the first two weeks of filming. You can see how that would they happen asked with a Paul film. Paul Michael Glazier, and he said no, there wasn't enough time to turn it into the film he wanted it to be. Uh-huh. So they got somebody else in, and then they dropped out. So Paul Michael Glazier stepped in, and it was literally filming had started by the sounds of that. If somebody was filming right. and went over budget. I'm not saying Arnold Schwarzenegger hasn't told the truth for what he understands, but that doesn't mean that it's not a little bit muddier. Sure. 
because Arnie also says that him and Paul Michael Glazier didn't get on very well. So maybe there's a juxtaposition there that. Yeah, I wonder. It seems a bit Alien Three this point. <laughs> sort, of, sort of uh, being sold, mm. you know, a gothic movie of monks in space, and then getting Fincher to salvage. Yeah. That. Yeah. So, so I think whilst I agree, Paul Michael Glazier is the guy where the book stops, so it is yeah. his responsibility. Yeah. I think possibly it's a little more complicated mm. than it was just what he wanted. Yeah. Um, but I think. I will. I think maybe it might come across to our listeners that I am bashing the adaptation. I love the adaptation. Oh, I love the adaptation, but I don't love it as an adaptation of the novel. No, and I think that that distinction needs mm. to be made clear. Uh, I think this is like The Shining, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Where the novel of The Shining and the film of The Shining are two separate entities, yeah. and you need to see them as yeah. separate entities. Yeah. Oh, that's what I think. Um, but this is the thing. I think in both cases, there have been whether Glazer had much sort of say in it or artistic, you know, employing his own artistic license or salvaging somebody else's. They've picked particular elements of the text yeah. and made them uh, a much bigger aspect of the of the uh, final artifact yeah no I agree absolutely Um, and so I'm wondering because I think that this is the thing that gets lost almost entirely uh, from the adaptation process is and I think if if you were going to revisit it and adapt it again I would certainly be sort of calling for that it's been made more prevalent is the the massive discrepancy between blue collar collar and white collar America. Oh gosh, yes. There's such a portrayal of poverty in America in this novel that, let's be frank here, isn't unreal in the 21st century. No. We've got a lot of aspects of this this fictional American culture that really have been quite prescient. Yeah. You know, we're talking... to, to. cure your child of pneumonia you need to have money yeah that's a very american thing right now and that you know there's a lot of things going on in america with them um, obamacare being repealed and needing to have funds in order to be alive and even in britain where we've got people refusing hospital appointments and dying because they can't afford the penalty for taking the day off work yeah. So we, we've got, that's a very real thing that's going on that he was writing about in 1982. Yeah. And it will get no credit for it whatsoever. <laughs> Just a lefty liberal and I bet, I bet you he empathised with Frankenstein's monster. How dare he. <laughs> snowflakes, Dawn, we're snowflakes. We're snowflakes. But yeah, no, I think that's, I think that's lost completely in the film. The Ben Richards in the film is a single man who ends up in prison because he's framed. He's yeah. not driven to it because he has a responsibility to his family. No. And because he's a social mis- misfit, that's the reason they're in that yeah. position in the first place, because he's a, he's a misfit. Yeah. He doesn't want to cow to the line of the overlords no. and do as he's told all of the time. He has a, a mind of his own and that that's penalised. And that's not what we see with Ben Richards in the film. No. I wonder if 
if in terms of its representation of poverty, Donald Trump would, would sort of read the Ring Man and declare it fake news. And probably. Just probably because that that's another thing, isn't it? That's what the hostage does. Yeah. It's fake news. She doesn't believe it. Yeah. You know, people don't want to see what is literally in front of their eyes. They'd rather believe what they're being told by the Games Network or the government or Fox, and or Fox News and friends. <laughs> I mean, say that I, I, yeah, I understand Stephen King isn't psychic, but no. I think the thing that. King, I think, has an acute understanding of the American cultural and political landscape. Mm-hmm. Which and let's know. not forget, he understands poverty. Yeah. And yeah. what it's like to try to escape from poverty. Yeah. I mean, at this point in 1982, he wasn't living on the breadline anymore, but he was by no means the Stephen King of 2018. No. No, and I, th- I think, unlike... Because we've talked, to, I mean, over coffee several hundred times about how his representation of children has, has changed as his own children mm. have grown up. I don't think that's the same when it comes to his representation of poverty. I think even if, as he's become more affluent and has more financial resources behind him, he still has a vivid mm. you know, memory of, of abject poverty and yeah. what that's like. I don't think that's something that you forget. No, I agree. In the same way that your interactions with your children will change as as they get older and and the, their social circles alter and things like that, so particularly in sort of today's political climate where you have a multi-billionaire in the White House, sort of dec- sort of belittling those that don't have yeah. the same financial resources through no fault of their own. Yeah, and that's, um, that's you know, let's be frank again, that's what's happening in Britain too. We've got oh, yeah. a ruling class who are demonising everybody who is not as affluent as them. Yeah. You know, if you are different in any way, if you are black, if you are Asian, if you are disabled, anything that deviates from being a rich white man means that you're a bad person and the media plays completely into that in a way that the games network is shown to do in both the novel and the film yeah more so in the film i think because there's a point where killian says he's talking to the department of justice and he wants their media aspect so he can talk about things and he says well what do you want me to do if you want people to not go out and riot that want them to watch television you're going to have to let me do this so i think king's making links again 30 odd years early yeah and I think that the film is also doing that quite well things that I, you know they're going to have been there but we're now looking at that from a different position we weren't you know I was and this film came out I was nine so it's I not something <laughs> it's not something that was on my radar you know the politics of America and what was going on so I'm looking at it historically but also seeing the parallels now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What a cheery thought that is. Oh, I know. I know. So, Alan, I reckon, I reckon we should wrap up. Yeah, I mean, it's only a, it's only a short short text, this one, so it might be that... I think the sense of urgency that the text lends itself to means we can get th- get finished. What do you reckon? I'm happy to wrap it up at that, po- at that point. It seems like a, a suitably dystopic... Uh, point at which yeah. to end our discussion. So I'll go home and be depressed now. 
What a cheery thought for the day. Anyway, so anyways, so, on a cheerier note, I think next month, Alan, we meet Roland Deshane for the I've first been looking time. Looking forward to it for ages. Yes. So, everyone's favourite uh, cowboy. Cowboy. I was trying to think of a better word than cowboy. <laughs> Couldn't think of one for love no money. But yes, the gunslinger next month. The yeah. Now I'm. I want to clarify, Alan. Yes. We're going to read the novel rather than the collection of short stories, which was released first. Yes. Because he re re edited, didn't he? Yes. And stopped it being a collection of discrete stories. Yeah. And made it a novel. Yeah, and I think while there is a certain episodic quality to it, I think it was right to do so, mm. given the trajectory of what was to follow. Can we also clarify, we're not reading all of the no. Dark Tower novels no. all in one go, Just the first know? one. Just the first one. Just the gunslinger. And before we go, just one little uh, aside yes. that links the gunslinger and the running man. Go There's on. a black guy in the novel who calls somebody a honky muffer. There is. Uh, that made me chortle away to myself and hear Susanna read. No, Odetta Holmes in my head. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Susanna Reed is. BBC good mo- News. Good reader. morning, Britain. <laughs> uh, we'll just get rid of that bit. We'll get rid of that bit. Is it not Odetta? Odetta Walker. Yeah. yeah. Well, you it's know all who, right. You know I know who, who you mean. I haven't got to that novel yet, Alan. I haven't read it. But you know who I mean. Yeah. It's you, don't, you don't mean the British Breakfast no, Television presenter, British anyway. Television presenter. And I'm sure we'll make more of that tie as and when it uh, appears. Yeah, so have we have we run out of time for our journal? No, you, we have until the 30th of April for submissions to be uh, completed and, and sent to us at pennywisedreadful at gmail.com. And if you have any comments, questions, complaints, want to tell us we're brilliant... Um, tell me I'm gorgeous. I'm, think, I'm thinking complaints. <laughs> um, you can tweet us at, at Pennywise Dread and our Facebook page where we regularly update with Stephen King based information is Alan? Uh, Facebook.com forward slash Pennywise Dreadful. Brilliant. And we'll see you next month. Bye.